go make money. Think think about all the the advice that you can get, and it's not really relevant at the end of the day. Go out, commercialize your product, make sure that you can sell something and, and make money. Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode two of the Good Money Podcast, hosted by myself, Ryan Edwards Pritchard, co-founder and CEO of Cape Technologies. Uh, this is the pod where we get to interview uh, some of the industry's best-known startups and scale-ups, and in particular, uh, the CFOs and the business leaders, the CEOs who are leading them. Um, and on today's show, I'm incredibly excited to welcome aboard uh, Chen from uh, Car Next Door. How's it going, man? Good, good. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, mate, it's it's great to be in the HQ. Another Watsu office. This one's over in Piermont Bridge. That's right. That's right. Uh, glad to see you here. It's pretty it's pretty nice here. Uh, we've been here for about mm, three, four years now. It's been quite a journey for us and uh, excited to, to grow to the next next level. Fantastic. And I was going to say, we, we were just chatting, well, we were just chatting before I came in. Um, uh, we'll get into obviously uh, Car Next Door and everything else, but it was, uh, it's quite interesting in terms of your setup as a, as a team, you're kind of like dotted around, not just Australia, but around the APAC region by the sounds of it. Yes, that's right. So we've got employees and staff all over Australia, uh, Perth, uh, Melbourne, Adelaide. So we're, we're actually a remote first company and we've been doing it for, since we started our co-founders, uh, from uh, Adelaide, and one person uh, is in Berry. So we've always had the remote first kind of mentality, and we meet online. So we don't actually need an office space uh, per se. And so we've got a very small setup in Sydney, um, and the majority of our staff overseas overseas based. It's it's quite nice. You can you can work anywhere you want, and you know ever since COVID, we've been we've been preparing it for for, for years essentially. Yeah. Wow. It, it was as if you had the crystal ball and you could foresee it coming. So not just Bill Gates, but yourself as well. So that's <laughs> yeah, we've been quite lucky. Like we're quite innovative. I mean, as a as a startup, there's only so many benefits that you can really sell uh, to get people incentivized to work with you. And so, you know, working from home is one of those things that's quite quite nice and quite niche and when I when I used to work at an accounting firm you know they'd, they'd talk about working from home setup so they never initiated it and it was quite difficult working from home nobody really trusted you but in a startup space you know you have a group of people like-minded people working together and it doesn't matter where you are as long as you get the job done right and I've only found that in startups that mentality has really come true most of the time when when business leader says oh we trust our employees or you know you can work from home as long as you get the job done what they really want to do is watch you uh take take your breaks from one to two for lunch and you know come into the office wear your suit but at car next door it's been fantastic like it's been really open and free in, in that kind of perspective that's awesome i think culturally we're definitely aligned in terms of that sense i think it's really important to empower your team and uh you know let them work in whatever manner best suits them um you know that's kind of going to unlock the best potential uh, and then going to have the biggest impact in terms of the product that you're actually building of course of course i've recently been reading uh i've recently been reading this book called multipliers and it talks exactly about that you know 
unlocking the potential of your employees where, you know, one employee doesn't mean one unit of output. They could do so much more if you give them the responsibility, give them the the ability to grow outside of their role and, and really reach out. And good or bad, startups are exactly like that. It's a bit of a, you know, you're walking in the fog. Uh, you don't really know where you're going, but you're tiptoeing around and trying to get to the to, to the next step and feeling your way around. And if you give people the opportunity to grow themselves and, and take on more responsibility, they'll really shine, you know. Like I, I think one of my um, staff members, an accountant, he, he did not know uh, much at all. He did not know Excel, but ever since joining Car Next Door, I've heaped upon him responsibility and and helped him through the process. And he's 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 now a superstar. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe like how he's grown from the setup where he was and now where he is now. Um, it's been quite amazing, and I think having that startup uh, mentality has really helped him uh, grow into into his roles. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say it's. Um... I guess I'm a big believer in terms of uh, strength-based coaching. And it's something I, I talk quite a lot to uh, my team about um, from their own development perspective. But that, that's kind of more about understanding individuals' capability and capacity and where really their talent lies and and, and trying to, um, uh, I guess, trying to expose that as much as possible, mm. you know, onto the business itself rather than trying to um, penalize people for perhaps uh, what they might not be great at, mm. you know, look at your talent, look at your people in terms of where do they excel above and beyond anybody else. And then look at how you as an individual, as a leader can then ensure that they are able to then do the best possible work. Um, and yeah, and I think the um, strength-based coaching, I think that's, it was um, something from Gallup actually, that, that was definitely a bit of a game changer personally in kind of understanding you, you know, 36 different qualities that everybody actually possesses and, mm. and where you rank, what your top five are. Um, I think that was uh, invaluable as well, just as a general kind of um, my own leadership development actually. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, moving just from the, yeah. the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the talent and uh, the Carnex all piece, because we'll definitely – uh, come back on to that later on. Curious to know a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, so what's my, your background? Yeah. How'd, so, you, how'd you get here? <laughs> I I flew. You flew? Uh, yeah. So if you can't tell, my name's Chen. So I'm Chinese Australian. I, I came, I was born in China and I came to Australia when I was about two down in Melbourne. And I grew up there, um, pretty middle, middle, um, middle, middle class, uh, growing up, moved a lot, um, and I went to school all over the place. I must have gone to like four or five different schools, and it was difficult um, being in some places where, you know, being an Asian growing up there, not a lot of Asians, you know, you, you kind of just stick to your, stick to yourself, and you kind of, yeah, it was, it was a bit difficult, and but where I really excelled is, is I guess, study and numbers. And so I got into Melbourne High, which is a selective school in Melbourne, which was the only uh, selective school at the time for, for boys to go into. Um, I did quite well and then uh, went into uni and got, got offers uh, to a few different unis. But my dad actually suggested that I go interstate because – uh, put it put it bluntly, he didn't want me to be a bit of a um, a, a mama's boy because I love staying at home. I was a bit introverted. 
Um, and he wanted me to kind of explore a little bit um, and grow out of my shell. And so I went to uni at UNSW, which is based in New South Wales, in Sydney, and I did a commerce and law degree. I had the best time of my life. I, I got involved in different uh, organizations, did singing, did dancing, did comedy, um, met a whole bunch of different people, and I spent all my time pretty much, you know, uh, not studying, but I passed. I passed, and I found a pretty good job uh, at J.P. Morgan. Intern there, did a bit of law work, but I, I didn't really find my calling until I joined um, Grant Thornton, which is a mid-tier accounting firm, and did uh, private advisory tax there, and spent five six years there. And then um, I well, loved hold, it. Just, just one second, sorry. Yeah. So you're saying that you found your calling in tax. Oh, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and at the at the time when I when I when I joined them, I thought this is going to be the most boring time. I'm going to work one or two years and then get the hell out. I mean, tax when you when you hear the word, it just sounds boring. But what I guess what my mentality was, if I could figure out how the the rich pay less tax, I could implement it when I become, you know, wealthy and, and powerful and I could, I could use all of those techniques uh, for my own benefit. And I did. I definitely learnt a, a whole bunch of different things while I was at Grant Thornton. Uh, very interesting type of work, varied type of work. And, um, yeah, I, I can say I've saved quite a few people a lot of money um, and that's what I'm good at. I'm, I'm good at saving money, thinking of different strategies to, to help people like grow their own businesses. And because I was in private advisory, I, I was allowed to touch upon different businesses and see different pain points and provide solutions to it. Yes, somewhat in a tax perspective, but I got to see a lot of different uh, uh, situations basically. And um yeah, look, I, I'm pretty proud of how much tax I saved. Probably not not what I'm about these days, but um yeah, it, it was great fun. But the interesting thing there in terms of the calling card, uh that element of finding ways to save people money mm. and become more efficient, that was the bridge in. That was the that was the kind of the calling card as such. Like Yes. Yes. And you know, growing up I I, I didn't have an allowance. I didn't have, you know, a lot of money to spend. Um, my my mum drove this like Mitsubishi Lancer, where every time she came and picked me up, people would think the pizza person was coming along. So <laughs> while while I say I, I think I'm middle class, like we, we we struggled a little bit, and so I always had to find, I guess, innovative ways to you know muster up money to get to spend on what I want and. Um, that way I became quite thrifty with money, you know. Um, I, I know how to look for opportunities. And I guess that that is the biggest point, you know, looking for opportunities where there may not be any and always having the the eye out for it. Because if you're never looking for it, you, you'll never find it. And and that's what I brought into the business at Car Next Door. That's the kind of thing that I brought into my advisory space, which is looking for opportunities when there are none. And, you know, what, what are the outcomes that you really want out of what you're trying to achieve? Because the, the, the biggest thing I've learned in tax is it's not about saving money in tax. It's make money first and then come to advisor and say, how can I minimize my tax legally? Um, and and that, 
that perspective really changed the way I think about things. It's not about saving money. It's first making money and then figure out how to optimize your, your setup for, for, for success, right? It's not, hey, I, I can save $30, $30 in tax. Let's, let's spend $100,000 or that's, that's a very extreme example. But, you know, I see people, you know, buy, buy a laptop and they think, oh, this is worth it because I can save, you know, $1,000 in tax. But hey, you just spent $3,000 buying a laptop. Was that something that you really needed? Or is it that you're trying to justify it by saying, oh, I saved $1,000 of tax? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I think sometimes people over-optimize for the back end as opposed to thinking about the top line growth first of all and mm. and always just kind of obsessing about top line growth whilst working out as you say what kind of comes through on the other side and it's that kind of old adage in terms of you know square root zero zero right exactly so like, there's no debate in here let's <laughs> let's let's focus on the top line yep. let's get the numbers working in the right way and then let's go back and you know let's try and or at least along the way work out how we minimize exposure of course. I mean, like, if you're not making any money, you're not going to pay any tax. I mean, that's the most tax effective <laughs> result, right? Zero tax. But if you're not making any money, it's, it's really not helpful. And- you ain't paying any salaries, that's for sure. <laughs> and you're, you're not, you know, you're not then investing back into the business. So, um, of course, it, it's a negative all around. An interesting point in terms of the the tax side. So just, I guess, with your Grant Thornton experience and just thinking about our audience here, mostly, uh, well, startups, scale-ups, businesses like Carnextor, any any other advice that you'd be giving or any just, I know, you know, legally we might not be able to give out advice here, (laughs) but um, any uh, insights that you might be able to offer out to to people looking into this space and question in terms of how do they best optimize? I. I think it just goes back to, you know, go make money. Think think about all the the advice that you can get and it's not really relevant at the end of the day. Go out, commercialize your product, make sure that you can sell something and, and make money. Tax and, you know, making your, your staff happy and and uh I guess, you know, your your expenses is it should be second fiddle. Um Go, go out and um, essentially figure out what what you want to do with your product. Go sell it. Um, don't worry too much about what you're doing. Worry more about whether you've got a good product and you're able to get people to pay for it. Um, I know I know of a story where a, a company had basically spent all their time developing this awesome product awesome absolutely awesome but they had never marketed it and once they went to market nobody really knew who they were and they could only get a few customers and they had spent so much money uh developing this this awesome product they got all the feedback did everything right but the thing that they didn't do is you know get people engaged and 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 want to buy it so they didn't do the marketing piece they didn't try and uh you know get people to put money forward put put the money where their mouth is and, and pay for it. And by the time they they really went to market and tried to get people to pay for it, people didn't want to pay for it. And what your company will really struggle if you can't make money. And, you know, tax is important. Uh, people are important. But at the end of the day, you have to sell a product. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think the, uh, the interesting thing in terms of uh, more so the price inside is, 
it's definitely testing that out along the journey itself um, and taking customers along that kind of experience and just understanding, you know, what would they pay for? What would they deem as expensive? What would they deem as uh, a price which is actually so good to be true that actually you're undervaluing it as well? Mm. But that's all the kind of, I guess that's all the data points that you want to be gathering before you go and launch a product itself. Of course, of course. Like, if, if time permits, that yeah, of course. And one of the things that has happened at Car Next Door is we did not really have a very good setup for data and financial data, especially in my in my role, but just business level data. We used to have a dashboard, and we have to get the developers to help us every time we needed a new metric. And knowing what, like what you said, what the customers want is important. But at the end of the day, you're also a business, and you get to dictate some of the prices. And as a, as a startup, we're very afraid of increasing prices for our customers. You know, we, we have that sensitivity with our customers that if we were to increase it by a dollar, we're, we're afraid we're going to lose half our customer base. And we've gone through that process. Pricing has been very scary. And what we've, you know, what we've learned throughout the process with pricing is just be bold. If you do have a very valuable product and people like it, you know, they they are willing to pay more than what you think they are. They're obviously going to tell you that, you know, I don't want to pay this much, that I don't want to pay, you know, this much for, for a trip or I don't want to pay $5 for a booking fee. But at the end of the day, if, if your product is good, they'll pay for it because that's all they've got. Yeah. I was going to say it was a uh, – not to drop kind of an, an- – Lots of books here, but um, <laughs> one that I was reading not that long ago was um, Van Westerdrop's uh, Pricing Strategy. Mm. And again, just fascinating book in terms of talking about exactly this point, understanding your customer base first of all, but then, um, yeah, digging in from a both quantitative, qualitative element in terms of uh, where the thresholds are mm. uh, and, and, and trying as much as possible to to get the right result for for your customers, right? Of course. Like I, I touched upon it before, it's like getting your data points right, measuring the the effects of what what happens if you do increase pricing. And what we've found is like sometimes you increase price and price and the customers don't drop it up. Sorry. Sometimes what happens is when you increase the prices by fifty cents, there's no drop off whatsoever. But you get to a point where you charge fifty five cents on top, and suddenly there's a huge huge shift in in the customer mentality and finding the right point is all data driven right so having the 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 data to back up what you you're trying to do is the is is pretty important and you don't want to be doing it after the fact because you might be making a decision uh, of increasing it by by a dollar and then find that you know you don't know whether this was a good move or not you don't, mm. you've only got this gut feel and gut feel isn't good enough in in this line of work you need to have the data to back it up know yeah. where where things are showing what what the trends are showing um how the customers are moving whether it's affecting your booking rates whether it's affecting your like revenue what what's happening with this data and trying to understand it but to understand it you need you need the data first right yeah i just for some context here mm. uh but car next door Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, that thing. <laughs> that thing. You know, the offices that we're currently in. Yes. Um, just for those that don't know, um, can you give us a bit of background on, well, first of all, what is Card Next Door? Oh. And then um, also, how did you 
come to be here? For, and, okay. and kind of going back to your story about from Grant Thornton, but first yep. of all, Carnex Store. Okay, Carnex Store. Uh, Carnex Store is a peer-to-peer car sharing network. It's kind of like Airbnb for cars. You can rent out your car and make a bit of money, or you can hire a car for an hour for about $5 an hour, and um, it's quite convenient. You don't have to go to the local airport to, to or, or a rental car company to get the car. It's essentially the car next door because we have about 4,000 cars spread across Australia, typically in all of the high high popular uh, dense areas and you, you probably see them with our stickers with the little faces uh, driving around and um, yeah that's that's what car next door does uh, we rent out cars but we're a platform that organizes people to to get those cars easily um, I mean from I mean I'm a car next door you <laughs> fan user um, and I gotta say uh, having just moved to Australia not having a not having a car not knowing really when I want to get one either but still needing to move into a flat, right? Mm, yeah. um, having to go and buy furniture for the first time because I've, I've moved from the UK, I don't own anything. Um, but there's a need constantly to kind of get in a car and go and pick up stuff uh, and get from A to B. And um, i got to say, like, yeah, manly in itself, uh, where I am, like, I, I see the there are so many around. So it's, yeah. it, it look, it's definitely a popular product. And again, in... I think under five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, I'm jumping on and I'm finding available cars. I can get in straight away. And usually the cars are a street, if not two streets away. There's a great, I'm assuming there must be API integration with Google Maps because, you know, you can see it dotted, you know, where Mm. all your local cars are. And then you can search an index based in terms of the vehicle type that you're looking for, but then also your price parameters as well in terms yep. of how much you're looking to pay. Mm. Um, it's, uh, yeah, again, <laughs> super easy to use. Um, I, I think I think from memory, the, the only kind of um, platform I've seen but I've not used myself uh, back in Europe was uh, Blah Blah Car. Have oh, you okay. come across French? No, I haven't. But I know... Th- the idea is not unique. There are two big players in the US called Turo and Get Around. Um, and yeah, we've been in Australia since about 2013 and grown quite rapidly because we don't, we don't own the assets. Uh, we, we capitalize on other people owning the cars. And so we, we don't have the leasing costs or anything like that. And we've really grown on the East Coast, especially. We've recently opened up in, um, Tasmania and, Secretly, we're, we're looking to open in South Australia and Northern Territory very soon as well. Um, so, wow, the sec- sneak- the, hold on. <laughs> the secret is now out, Chen. You realize <laughs> there's 100,000 listeners to this show. So, I mean, they're, they're, everybody's now going to know. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> you've heard it here. You've, you've heard, heard it, it here. here first. Heard it here first. And so we've been in operation since 2013. We started in Bondi with a few cars, and now we've got a 200,000-strong member base and 4,000 cars all across Australia. So we've done quite well. And, uh, yeah, in, in terms of my journey into Car Next Door, it's quite funny because while I was at Grand Thornton, my my manager at the time knew Will, the, the co-founder, and they used to play rugby together and they were looking for an accountant. And my, my manager at Grand Thornton said, hey, Chen, you know, you've been talking about wanting some, you know, extra experience. Why, why don't you uh, apply for this job at Car Next Door? And I was like, oh, is, is that okay? And he said, yeah, don't worry about it. And I basically came in as their bookkeeper. I was wow. doing probably two, three days 
like on and off, not not full full time, just two three days here and there, just bookkeeper work and um, they chasing must, up the receipts, closing the books at the end of the month. Oh, I wasn't even doing that. I was just doing some manual coding on on zero, and that's about it. And you know. I must have done a pretty good job because the the CTO at the time said, you know, Chen, we'd love to offer you a more permanent position. And then I was like, okay, I'll I'll do that. I was still I was still working at Grant Thornton at the time, so I was working both jobs. And um, essentially, I got wowed by Carnex Store's real um, environmental focus. So Carnex Store offsets its emissions. Its primary purpose is to uh, change how we think about cars, get rid of the one car, uh, one one person, one car mentality of the world, and really start sharing our sharing our um, assets. You know, we're 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 basically, you know, how do I say? Like we're we're overusing the the resources in the world, and there's no point everyone having a car. And we're trying to change that mentality so that we start sharing more. Uh, making use of our resources for a lot longer. Um, each shared car gets probably seven, eight cars off the road. And so that environmental focus really shifted my own personal uh, belief systems as well. Before I was very money focused, you know, make money, save money. But since joining Carnex, so I've been I've, I've been changed. I, I I look for environmental change. I'm recycling. I've changed banks who don't invest in fuel and and carbon emissions. Um, it's it's been great. And since I've I've joined them, I've I think you know that uh, I don't know, really know what I'm 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 saying. But um, yeah, I've really enjoyed my my journey so far at Car Next Door. Interestingly, digging into the sharing economy. Mm. So. Uh, I'd say through the noughties, we definitely saw the emergence of two-sided marketplaces coming into prominence. Mm. Um, you know, we've seen the sharing economy, we've seen the circular economy come through. Uh, really curious, though, uh, just given what we've been through over the last, what, 15, 18 months in terms of the pandemic, uh, what was the impact in terms of that, uh, you know, the sharing economy mm. in a time where, you know, governments around the world, you know, are really focused in terms of having us not share, yeah. not spend, not, uh, not invest, obviously being very conscious of um, social distancing and, um, you know, the impact in terms of, um, you know, COVID, right? So w- what was the, because it's just, you, I'm, I'm sure you've probably got the data behind this. Mm. Uh, h- how did that play out for you guys? Well, first off, the sharing economy has been blown out of the water and we really have to thank like Airbnb um, for really leading into that space. I don't think we would exist without them and we've really kind of cemented our hold in the car sharing space. And during COVID, to to put it bluntly, we were really scared. Like we were tremendously scared. We were like, you know, what is the impact exactly what you were you were saying the government's telling us not to share don't don't share surfaces what about our members are they going to be scared about using someone else's car you know what if they've got covid how do we react to this and honestly we we came out stronger than before we were really surprised by what had happened people did not want to go on public transport uh, they were using a private car because it felt safer. There was no one else in the car. They could, you know, sanitize the, the handle and sanitize some of the, the, the surfaces. And what we found is that people 
are actually more open to using the sharing economy during the pandemic, which is completely surprising to us. It it blew us out of the water. Imagine me trying to do budgeting during this period. I was like, oh, our booking rates are going to go down. No one wants to share their car. But there was some real resilience in the economy where people really stood out and, and, and really shined. You know, there'd be stories of people, you know, not being able to take public transport because their doctor told them not to. You know, mm. it's too dangerous. So they didn't have a car. They used car next door. People going to the shops, you know, they didn't want to take, you know, public transport, so they decided to use a car next door car. Uh, people couldn't buy cars because the secondhand car market is is essentially like blown up. The supply is gone. Car manufacturers stopped production. Didn't Cars didn't come into Australia. And so if you couldn't buy a car because the, the secondhand market has gone through the roof, what are you going to do? You're going to have to rent a car. And I think it wasn't too big of a problem in terms of that, you know, being scared of the, the scientific piece where, you know, people didn't want to get COVID, but they were forced to. They had to use whatever was available to them to make things work. And I think the resilience has shown that the sharing economy has been quite strong during during COVID. Um, and, you know, our booking rates are, are showing. And because we've been cooped up for so long as well, people are eager to get out and about. And, you know, during during the summer period, which we just went through, our bookings were tremendously strong and really, 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 really happy that, you know, this kind of economy has has blown up and provided a source of income for our owners. Some some owners in our Facebook group have said, you know, I've lost my job and, you know, your income from Car Next Door has provided food to my family. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's spectacular. Like we've we've provided this opportunity and what we thought would have happened in COVID has been the exact opposite response. People are using us more, you know, owners are using us to to make money and, and supplement their income. So it's a I mean, that's a really interesting point there. So it's actually a way for individuals to gain passive income in that case. I'm very big on passive income. Like, I don't know if you know about the FIRE community, which is financial independence, retire early. You know, having that backup income in case of a rainy day is, is, a, is a big deal. And if you want to have um, some, some security, you can't just rely on working that nine to five job. Um, if you want, you know, to spend a little bit more or have a little bit of extra income, having that passive income is quite, quite lucrative you know i'm doing airbnb i'm doing car next door having those supplemental incomes has been quite a boost during periods of uncertainty how did you come across the this is an interesting one i've never come across this so uh, uh, how did you come across the um the fire network um the fire network uh i <laughs> this this actually goes back to my childhood i my aunt told me that even as a kid, I wanted to work from home. So right. Car Next Door has been, you know, the, the right place to work. But this, the, the, the biggest thing for me is I never wanted to work till I'm 60 or 70, yeah. right? I wanted to work um, until I'm 35, 40 and then have enough income to basically support myself. You know, people who talk about, you know, putting, uh, I don't know, $2 million in the bank and just living off the interest. Imagine that, you know, not being reliant on your job and and being able to live freely in your own in in your own space and so i i fell upon the fire community about 
two, three years ago, I was just reading about people who were uh, able to quit their jobs. You know, those articles that you see on the news, it's like, oh, you know, 30 years old, quit their job and now traveling and writing a blog. And I was thinking, you know, why can't we do this? I mean, we're a very fortunate uh, country where we're able to make quite a bit of money. What is preventing us from just retiring at 40? Do we need that much money? Do we need, I don't know, five, $10 million of retirement money to live comfortably? And I started looking into like, what is it that I need to retire, like realistically retire? And as I was reading more articles about it, I, I found um, people who had went on this journey way earlier and started saving money, putting it into um, uh, index funds and just and, and just growing their passive income space on the side and then able to retire at around 40 and that's exactly what I wanted to do. And as you read more into it uh, about the FIRE community, you'll you'll see that it's completely possible. We do need to change our mentality with how we think about money, how we think about savings and things like that. And most people, I think, can, can reach it by 40, 45. But we're, we're stuck in this rat race mentality where we have to work and then we spend the money. And then once we spend the money, we have to work again because we've run out of money. And we don't have you know, good education systems to uh, basically think at 18, you know, every dollar that I earn, I need to put put away some savings. Uh, super is really important. I need to start contributing into super. We, we don't think long-term. We always think very short-term. It's like, I'm going on a holiday this year. I need to save this money and then spend it. But what about your longer-term objectives? Like, you know, um, do you, do you want to retire at 40? Do you want to travel every year? Build it into your kind of budgeting system so that you're able to achieve it by 40. Funnily enough, like I don't, I don't know if normal people do this, but I've been, I've been budgeting since I was 18. So I moved out of home when I was 18, moved to UNSW to, to study, and I've used Excel to start, but essentially I've recorded every single item of spend since 18 and I could tell you how much I've earned, how much I've spent, and then I can analyze it, look at where I've like, you know, that looks a bit weird. I've spent. Oh. Shane, are you saying that you audit yourself? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. How does that go down? Oh, look, <laughs> you know, like I, I still go out for food. I still go on a holiday and things like that. It's, it's more to look back on what's happened in the year and understand where your financial position is and see where are the things that really stand out. Um, it was surprising. I, I've got my girlfriend on, on, on this journey that I have and she was doing her zero and she found out that she had spent over $5,000 on brokerage fees because she, she wow. likes investing in the, in the stock market and things like that. And she's like, that sounds crazy because, you know, brokerage fees are around, I don't know, ten, twenty dollars per per transaction. Yep. She's thinking maybe it spent a thousand dollars, maybe a thousand five hundred dollars on brokerage, bought a few shares during the during the pandemic and things like that. But she spent over five thousand. And those are the kind of insights that you don't have if you don't track these things. And yeah. it goes back into the the data piece that we were talking about before. If you don't have the data readily available, you you'd never know because you've only got this gut feel that you've spent this amount of money. And Surprisingly, every year I look at it, there's always something that I'm like, no way I spent that much money on uh, travel. No way I spent that much money on eating out. And once you have that data, you might start thinking, do I need to spend that much money? Like a lot of people might 
say, yes, I do want to go out and have the fancy dinners or, you know, go out and eat every day, that's fine. But if you don't have the data to say, hey, you've actually been eating out 200 days of the year and been spending like $15,000 on eating out, it, 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 it won't change your mentality on how, how you're spending your money or like how you're, how you're, you know, you know, yeah, how you're spending your money essentially. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of more the, I guess, the democratization of uh, of money, but then also understanding of money. And um, more specifically in terms of providing uh, people with the tools to actually uh, gain greater, greater context uh, in mm. terms of that. And I'd say that's really probably been the, the whole movement with neobanks, you know, the I guess the 1.0 is very much, you know, often talk about neobanking being spend, invest, and save in lending, you know, those kind of four key pillars. But really a lot of the neobanks that have come through have, have been really focused on the spending piece. And I guess the first piece has been all around, um, you know, providing a, a great data visualization through their, you know, backend categorization of where you've been or what, you've been, what merchants you've been spending your money at. And then showing that up on a dashboard view with a nice little pie chart, usually mm. showing that, you know, lo and behold, you're spending too much money at Starbucks every day or, <laughs> or whatever else it might be. But I think just first first of all, just um, helping people understand uh, whether that's actual consumers or businesses where their money is actually going. Uh, and then I guess the kind of next layer on that in terms of the intelligence layer, and I think this is kind of where we see the movement with the next wave of neobanks is, helping you understand how to spend smarter. Yeah, for sure. And like spending smarter is important. And I, I've changed my thrifty ways as well. Like I've gone up and down with how I spend money. Um, I, I used to just hate spending money. <laughs> That's probably why I'm a, I'm a decent CFO because I don't like spending money. And um, that that mentality has definitely changed a lot. Um, because unfortunately in business you, you have to spend money and you have to spend money in the right places. The, the allocation of resources is quite important. And I, I, I'll tell you a story. When I first started as a bookkeeper at um, Car Next Door was that I, I saw an invoice come through, which was, oh, it must have been, you know, a month's worth of income. Like I, I can't remember. It was tens of thousands of dollars, right? And back then we, we weren't earning a lot of money at all. Mm. And I, I saw this invoice come through and I was like, how can we, who, who has made this decision? I, I want to speak to them. This is, this is crazy. Like a 2030, I, I don't remember the exact number, but a $20,000, invoice, what was it for? And it was to hire a, um, a, a developer. And I was like, oh, this isn't even their wages. This is just the recruitment fee. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I, I, I had a bit of a discussion and, and I was trying to understand the, the rationale behind that. And now I understand, which is, you know, when you hear money like $20,000 or $50,000 or a million dollars, you have the natural gut instinct to think this is a lot of money. We shouldn't mm. spend this, right? And that shouldn't be the way you think about money. It's about the return and the data backing it up, right? You can spend Twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and what happened at Carnegie is we 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 hired this developer, um, paid wages, paid this invoice of twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and the return was immediate. We managed to push out so many changes in, into the pipeline that we couldn't have done 
customers were happier, you know, staff were were happier because they they had the tools to do their stuff. And you could really see that the return came back within two, three months. Mm. And that that really changed my perspective on how we spend money because if you think of it as a return on investment and rather than the 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 face value of how much you're spending, that is how you judge whether you should spend money or not. Yeah. Right. And this is different from personal life because obviously going out for dinner, that's a personal enjoyment. No one can put a put a value on that. But for business, right, everything that you spend has to have a return of investment calculation into it. And having that calculation will help you prioritize what you spend on. Yeah. Right? If you if you spend, you know, something that has a return on investment in two, three months. Uh, and and you're spending a million dollars. That's worth it. It doesn't even matter if it's two million or ten million dollars. You, you get that money back straight away. Yeah, I well, I, th- I think it's um, so. It's really interesting for, from a personnel perspective, especially when it comes to engineers. Uh, the time when it comes to hiring, onboarding, uh, ramping them up, you know, just literally getting them into. Uh, understanding your code base mm. and you know the the way we do things around here mm. the the sprints the rituals mm. uh, you know all of that side you know it, it can take a while but the fact that the um in your instance that they're able to have such an immediate impact on the um on top line performance that's that's incredible um one of the, i mean one of the other kind of areas aside from you know if you look at expenditure in a company you know payroll 100 percent, obviously that is one of the big things mm. uh, the other one i'd say with a lot of fast growth companies and just general companies these days is more so uh i guess more marketing and acquisition spend you know when when we analyze a lot of our customers uh expenditure a lot of it is focused on that and it is interesting just digging into that part because i'm all always amazed in terms of the lack of clarity when it comes to a, a, a dollar spent and how much has been returned and not just that i'd say going one level beyond understanding multi-touch attribution. So, you know, getting yourself, um, getting your setup right so that you can understand, you know, you're spending money across multiple different channels to acquire customers. Um, but, you know, looking at the first touch, the last touch, you know, which was the one that really had um, the the weighted benefit of helping convert the customer. Mm. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, Crawl, walk, run is our general philosophy in most things, but the crawling is just going, right, well, can we get the data in terms of understanding mm. for every, you know, this dollar was spent on this channel here and, and this is the amount of customers that came through and this is where they converted. Whereas, you know, the crawl into the running, you know, it, it's really understanding all of the touch points that you've interacted with that customer uh, and having a weighted balance across those different ones so that you can understand the impact is that something that you guys have been investing in or kind of like looking into over here? Yeah, it's, I have to say, like when I joined Connextor, I, I, I didn't have much marketing background at all. And to, to put, I, I had the belief that finance and marketing just don't mix. Um, they're, they're mortal enemies because, you know, from a finance perspective, we're trying to have return on, on investment. And back then I didn't understand any of this. And I don't even know if the, the technology was there at the point in time to have this attribution and things like that, but Carnextor didn't. And it, it always felt like 
uh, putting money into marketing was kind of like a void. You you just throw it in there and then you, you get some benefit out of it. And it's, it's really difficult to see what, what, what happens afterwards. And, uh, funnily enough, our, I don't know who recommended at the time, my CEO or, or someone, they, um, they said, Hey Chen, why don't you do some marketing? <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? what? <laughs> they said, well, you're really good at Excel. Um, we've got some Excel work and I think you'd be the perfect person to go into marketing. And I did marketing for about one, one and a half years for Carnextall. Search engine marketing, so the Google spend, uh, solely Google spend, and it completely transformed my idea of how marketing works. And looking at the data, putting you know attributions together, the channels together, how much return we're getting, how it, how the single dollar is leading to this borrower. Um, getting onboarded or this car getting onboarded completely changed my view of how marketing works because yeah in in the past it was just completely foreign to me but since knowing and working in marketing and and learning about the attributions and the the channels and how the money flows in and how the benefit comes out it's completely changed my my perspective on on this kind of space and I think that the insight that I have is make sure that you're measuring the right things. Mm. You know, you talk about all these attributions and things like uh, things like that. But one of the mistakes that we made during this process was that we were concerned about how many borrowers we were getting onto the platform. Our, our measurement was like borrowers is in um, vis-a-vis myself here looking to rent a car. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So whoever is renting the car, we we consider a borrower. Is that where I mean again, just benefit no. out, but uh, two-sided marketplaces typically that they, they don't. Um, there is sometimes a lack of parity in terms of uh, the demand, mm. and one side is always lagging the other. And in this instance, in your space, is that? Typical in terms of the biggest issues, usually trying to drive people on in terms of to go and rent. No, it's it's a bit of both. Um, my my CEO often says it's like a pasta machine with two two handles, and you know it's a constant uh, trying to figure out the right uh, way to do it so that you get really flat pasta. Because if you if you roll it incorrectly one side will get thicker one side is thinner and then you're trying to over adjust and then the opposite side happens a two-sided marketplace constantly like sometimes it's borrowers sometimes it's our owners of the cars that we have to kind of push supply um right now it's it's a lot to do with supply and that's what we're addressing um yeah and what did you discover through that oh and what we discovered is you know this is this is typical of startups which is we were driving as many users as we can to sign up, mm. right? And we were matching attribution from, you know, how much money we spend to how many signups we get. But so I don't know who figured this out, but they were like, why is that important? Why is a sign-up important to us? And to us, when we were answering the question, it was obvious, you know, a sign-up leads to, uh, uh, you know, them, you know, getting on the platform, potentially booking, and then we we make money, right? But the, the the thing that we didn't think about is it's not about the sign up it's about them actually booking you yep. know it's it's about you know every dollar of marketing that we spend is how much 
borrower spend on the platform and we hadn't even connected those two dots and all we were driving and incentivizing our marketing team was to get signups yeah you know what it's 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 so interesting when you start looking at that because you start thinking about what does your funnel look like Mm. and um i guess the thing that we'd always you know again we we talk about kind of internally is uh i guess the kind of whole thinking about moving yourself from if you imagine being at a bar, a nice martini glass into something which is more like a champagne flute. And it's how do you how do you get your funnel so that it's more like that champagne flute mm. in the sense of customers coming in and actually uh, converting through each of those different stages? Because you're right. I was literally just thinking, like, I've downloaded the app, but, mm. like, how many people download the app, but then they never move on to the, fi- yep. to the next stage, the next stage, the mm. next stage. And actually there's a, you know, you've got to, you've got to monitor each, each of those parts because if you're not, you know, if one of those parts fails, then ultimately the whole thing falls down. And it is, um, you know, it's, it's about how many shots you can get in. You want as many people coming in. Yes. Uh, first of all, to give yourself the best possible chance in terms of conversion and then optimizing as much as possible uh, the journey itself um, to get people to transact, mm. right? So mm. I'm assuming just on that basis then, uh, how did you guys, you know, come into that understanding that actually what really matters is getting people transacting, not not necessarily the, the, the download. Was it a case of then honing in on, uh, I guess, kind of um, A-B testing and kind of like optimization of the funnel in that case and then move back into more of a, I guess, a, a technology and product lens? So I guess, yeah, like... It's a very difficult question, and we're going into quite quite a lot of detail, which I, I don't think I'm 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 suited to say. Um, but we, I think, how we got started was that our our attribution our our data was just really bare, and it's only the the last year year and a half that we've really upped our ante in terms of you know tracking these funnels tracking the attributions so the product piece actually came much later we had to figure out our marketing strategy up the up the funnel and then dictate how we wanted to to measure it um which is kind of kind of weird i don't know whether this is the right way to do things but um from from our perspective it it just we it was it was a bit difficult because we we don't know how to do things and then once we figured it out and then we kind of backtracked and then built the systems for it i'd i'd say think about this before you get into it and get your product people on board because what you find is you you now may have a lot of data but it's the wrong data because the the product team haven't actually built the thing that you need and you only figure out what you need until much later when you've got the data and see that it doesn't work oh it's <laughs> trust me it's you got to laugh because it's like it's different problems at different stages and you know arguably what you're trying to solve early on in the journey is more of a question of product market fit and mm. um, the important thing is just being able to get hold of that data along the way so that you can spot the issues in terms of the funnel but again being resourced light you know everybody's running uh, as fast as possible to build and then looking back at the trail of destruction and inevitably what happens <laughs> and somebody somewhere's looking and going well hold on there is all this leakage here yeah. like let's go back and let's try and sort this out um in an ideal world you've got 
uh, you've got the data, you've got the reports, uh, the, the, the general BI that's coming through from as early as possible so that you can stop that. But inevitably, startup land, you know, pace. You I know. know. It's, it's so difficult. Like we've gone two steps forward, one step back multiple times, sometimes even maybe even three steps back. Uh, it, it's just the space that you're, you're, you're in when you're in a startup. And, you know, figuring out and navigating that journey is quite fun for some people and it can also be quite daunting for others and it's just sticking by it and, and working through the problems as they come because a lot of the time you're just not going to, you're not going to realize the problem until it hits you straight in the face and you're like, ah, oh, what a waste of two, three months. There's, there's so much uh, movements and pivoting in a startup that you, you can't foresee everything that, that happens and it happens. And that's why I'm also comfortable with, you know, having some expenses that, you know, we, we learn a tough lesson from, you know, I, I've had situations where I've, you know, spent money and it was completely wrong. And, you know, you just have to treat it as a lesson. You can't beat yourself up that you spent this money. It was a complete waste of two, two months worth of resourcing, but it, it's something that you, you, you take on board. Um, that's really interesting. How, so, um, culturally, how do you, how do you go about budgeting and treat spend in that case? Cause it's, I, I, I listen, I, I think, I think it's fascinating. Just everybody's got a slightly different kind of take in terms of this side. Um, but from your perspective, especially when it comes to, to come back to the start of the conversation about peak performance and, mm. you know, unleashing uh, your greatest resource, which is your people uh, so that they can impact both top and bottom line. Um, how have you uh, empowered them? How do you go about kind of helping them do their job as best as possible? It's quite funny because we're going through the budgeting process right now and it's completely different from before because we've, we've grown in size and the, the, the requirements are different. So in, in terms of how you budget, you should suit it towards whatever the, the business needs. And when you're a very small startup, the, the business needs to be agile and moves with expenditure. You can't just say, let's set a, a, a marketing budget for $50,000 or you set a, a software expenses budget of $20,000 and that's it, right? Because in a startup, you don't know what they're going to be building. You don't know what new opportunities arise. It has to be a lot of flexibility. And so when we first started budgeting, it was more like, what are the the top line metrics that we want to achieve and what are the kind of costs that are involved to achieve those uh, metrics and go from there? Ooh, so you're taking the, the top-down type of approach. Here. Very, very bad. I, I know. It, and, it, and it changes, right? Because at that point in time, to, 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 to give a budget that is, you know, fixed is, is very difficult, I think. Like, I look... It's a moving target. It's a moving target. Yeah, and we all know that. Yeah, and when when we're doing budgeting, like it was the best information that we have. A budget could last like two months, right? I, I used to do budgets all the time and it, it'd be moving too much. And then we found that, you know, that's unreasonable. We can't keep moving the, the goalposts along the space. And so we had to be become more like fixed in our spend, fixed in our things. And over time, it's completely changed. Now it's a like consultative process with all the managers right the managers basically work with the executive team to to look at our strategy and our our vision for the next few years and work out the top 
few strategies that they want to work on, which is our OKRs, the objectives and key results. You know, I don't, I don't know if people use that kind of framework. And then from those, they kind of meant to tell me like what they think is going to be achieved. What are the outcomes of those achievements? What are the probabilities of those achievements? And then they feed it to me. And then I build the budget around that. And then I go back to the manager and say, Hey, you told me this. This is what you said you're going to achieve in terms of our car numbers, uh, in terms of our, our revenue numbers. Is this achievable? I'm going to lo- hold your word to it. And then I go to the executive team and say, I've spoken to everybody. This is what they've said they can achieve. This is what we can do to spend. And then they review it and, and, and we lock it in. It, 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 it's hard to say one way is the best way. Mm. It is very very fluid and just moving all over the place you do whatever is necessary for your team to have a good goal and then once that is is set and it works keep with it until it doesn't and then just change it again i i don't think like we we follow any like textbook uh way of doing a budget obviously like you know you have to give some numbers and 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 set a set a goal but the the process has changed so much that i wouldn't say you know, there's any advice to do it our way. Um, you're just going to have to find what works for your business. Yeah. But from the way that you're describing it, so for those, like, again, OKRs typically, you know, it's a quarterly kind of basis cascading down into uh, individual teams that then um, get given their mandate as such. Uh, and then end of the quarter, then kind of review and then kind of reset, get ready again. Mm. Um from just kind of listening back in terms of the way that you kind of describe it there. So you're then having the managers come to you from all the different teams just to kind of keep you up in the loop with how they're progressing, tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're setting um, specific budgets uh, that they can then utilize towards uh, resources and whatever assets that they require mm-hmm. uh, to go and achieve the results that have been uh, put mm-hmm. in place for the OKRs. Yeah, that's right. And we're still in a pretty fluid state where like if the 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 product team decide that we need another piece of software that's quite expensive, we we put it in. Like we 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 change our forecast. We don't change our budget obviously because that's set. We we just put it in because the stage of business that we're at is that we need that spend. And it goes back to what I was talking about before. What is the purpose of not not the purpose of that. What is the return on that spend? Is it yeah. going to make our business earn more money? Is it going to make our cost reduce? Right. So, why do we need to spend this out of budget item right now? Is it the right uh, uh, priority for the business? And then assessing it that way, um, instead of saying this is your hardline budget of fifty thousand dollars, you have to meet it. You use whatever tools necessary to to make that work. Um, yeah, we, we, we keep it quite open. Interesting. And any, I guess, tips or hints for anybody else that you found help when it comes to managing spend and um, just getting control of it as well? Because yes. as you said, uh, especially in the subscription economy that we're in, um, that is one thing where there is an enormous amount of uh, general creep in terms mm. of spend. Um but yeah, any any kind of tips or hints that you'd kind of give to listeners? Yeah, I can say uh, people already know this, but cash is king, and you got to watch 
cash. Like how much cash you have in the bank, what's the likely trajectory to spend, what if things don't work out. I remember probably when I first did a budget three, four years ago, I made a massive mistake in cash. Luckily, it was in the right direction. But, you know, when I made that mistake, I had forecasted that we'd have a million dollars in the bank account. We got as low as, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars. That's dangerous. Never, ever do that. You've got to be so careful. Dare I ask at this stage, what was was your burn rate at that point in time? Oh, it it was large. Like... I don't even want to tell you. Like I'm just we were, we were in red. Like I, I was seriously worried. We were also capital raising at the time, and the the funds were running very light. And this was early in, and that that mistake, I, I would say, build so many buffers to cash. Like if you're a startup and you think you need to raise five million dollars, just even if you have to suffer a bit of like your your, your ownership, just raise a bit more. Just because what happens is once you raise money you have to pay costs to, to that raise. So you're not going to get the full amount and you've already spent some money while while you're going through. Typically, the- are we talking about more the kind of, uh, specifically the broker fees, the legal fees? Yeah, like all of those, like, you know, you pay your consultants, pay your legal fees. If you if you raise 5 million, maybe you get 4 million, right? And you're already starting off lower than what you, what you have. The team is all happy and chirpy. Everyone thinks like, oh, we've got all this money, right? And you, everyone wants to like, take a grab at it. And and it's fair enough. Everybody wants in, in the best interest of the business, grow the business and they need money to do that. And so everyone's grabbing at you. Everyone's like asking, oh, can we just spend oh, $100 here, $1,000 here? But if you think about it, just if we broke down a million dollars into $10,000 chunks, you have 100. Is it 100? I think it's 100 chunks. <laughs> and if you, if you think about it, 100 chunks is not a lot. No. To, to to really divvy up to all of your resources, and it's actually the most important time to make sure you've allocated it correctly. This when when you capital raise, because everybody is going to be reaching in into the kitty and say, "Oh, we've just raised all this money. It's okay. We can we can spend this now." Be very careful at that time. Yeah, it's yeah. not just. I, th- I think my kind of experience of going through this process uh, a couple of times in the past. It's not just internally, but it's externally as well in terms of the perception, especially when you've got vendors and other people kind of around, you know, again, they might have been on the journey with you for some time, but all of a sudden, you know, your ability to negotiate prices <laughs> when they know that you're cashed up suddenly just dis- dissipates away uh, yeah. and you find yourself you know, typically paying what really is the shelf price, if not more than that, mm. because they know that you, you're, you're actually cashed up. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you cash up, your mentality is like, oh, it's okay. We've got a bit of money, so let's just spend it because we need this thing. But uh, like, I'm not, I'm not saying hold out and don't spend money at all. I'm saying you just got to be careful with what you're, you're spending on and, and make sure you get the best deal. Like, okay, I'll give you an example during COVID. Like COVID happened. Everyone's like trying to cut costs. And what we found is we could reduce our operational expenditure by 20, 30%. And that's not, that's not, um, you know, things because COVID came along and we had to reduce it. These are things that we found that we were just overspending money on. Yeah. And and it takes like an event like COVID to really come along to really set 
everyone's mind to cost cutting because nobody wants to nobody wants to think about cost cutting. It's a time consuming thing. It's a time right? consuming thing, and then COVID runs along and everyone's on it, and and now we're able to do it. But think about it: if we were spending twenty thirty percent over, we could have had those savings way before. And it, it's that mentality that um, you have to keep in the back of your mind that everything is inefficient and you have to start changing things very early on. Like uh, currently we're going through um, organizational debt and these are things that really bury and, and hamper efficiency and effectiveness in a team. When you you have a, a well when you have a business that's running for a while, you become inefficient. Mm. And that's, as a CFO, you just have to be ahead of the game on, on that front. Um, you, you can't be just sitting on your laurels and thinking, hey, we're earning so much money, we don't need to worry about things. It's it's the opposite of what I was talking about very early on in, in this talk, which is like, hey, now that you've earned the money, now is the time to check your operations, check your processes, make sure that things are running smoothly. And you can't just let it lie mm. you need to look for opportunities and, and really take advantage of them before they become a bigger problem because if you if you go 2x 3x 10x that problem is going to expound way faster than your than your earnings and if you're inefficient those problems really will come back and bite you and when we were talking about cash that's when you're like why didn't i do this earlier i should have done this years ago i should have looked at those expenses and negotiated or like i should have really talked to the team and said why are we wasting so much of our of our resources doing this process and you know if you have the mentality that you know ah oh, five dollars is you know whatever or fifty dollars is whatever that's that's where you can change inappropriately for the bigger items because where does that where does that change is is fifty dollars a small amount is five hundred dollars a small amount when you get to five hundred and, and you're making a hundred million dollars in revenue um for for whatever business is, is five hundred dollars enough and it's constantly having that mentality that everything matters right every little bit matters and if you can bring that it flows through to the rest of the team and i have to say my team's quite good now like they worry it's like oh chen doesn't want us to spend on this five dollars and at the end of the day i want them to spend i don't, I don't want them to be inefficient I, I don't want them to be you know just worrying about the five dollars but just having that in the back of their mind it's like is this worth it are we doing the thing that is efficient are we spending the right way what is this money that we're spending on and and getting the team thinking about these things because even people at the at the front line they're not they're not thinking about, you know, the budgets or forecasts or spend. But mm. if you if you put it in front of them and say like, hey, you know, you, you just spent this. Why, why did you do this? And ask the question. Get them on board with these ideas. Then you get the whole team and culture in line with what you're trying to achieve, right? It, it's very difficult to, to kind of just tell everybody, think about money, think about money. But it it takes a bit of time to grow into that space. You're not, as a finance team, you're not going to get, you know, sales managers to start thinking about money straight away. But if you put them on the hook for it and say like, hey, what, what is this? And actually, you know, question everything that they do, then they're going to start thinking in your perspective. Yeah. 100%. I was going to say it, the the cultural element is so, so important. And um Yeah reflecting back i guess it was something my granddad always used to say which is um yeah 
take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. Yeah. Right. And it, 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 it starts really from the, thing. the lowest levels, not the high levels. Like thinking of what you do with a million dollars is easy because there's going to be so many people watching you. But, you know, what happens to the $50? Nobody's watching. And if nobody's watching, that's where you can really tell if someone's got the right frame of mind in terms of what your finance objectives are. Yeah. yeah. But they, again, that friction point as well, uh, interning, which kind of does bubble up finance team versus sales team, finance team versus yeah. marketing team. Jeez, <laughs> you guys, eh? Yeah. But, but the, the problem is it's, um, you know, you, you are the, you're the guardian of, um, you know, a company's uh, greatest resource. Of and, course. And, uh, you know, the finances, uh, the money, the cash, you know, that's the lifeblood of the business. Um, mm. That makes sure that, Every, that this organization, this thing that, that can continue to operate. Um, so it's imperative. Uh, it's, it's, it's just trying to work out how do you build the right type of culture and then how do you ensure that you've got the, I guess, the tools, the processes, the systems um, that are then actually complementing and, uh, yeah, um, mm. steering everybody in the right direction because yeah. it's one team, right? And trying to remove the friction away from that. But I think that also comes down to visibility mm. and transparency. And I think that the, when I've talked to other finance teams in the past, yeah, I, I do find that there is, um, there's an old way of doing things and there's, uh, you know, and I think there's a more modern way of doing things, but the old way of is definitely that kind of, um, backward retrospective us and them mm. um and a lot of the time that is built on the fact that um the information the data is not readily available mm. um and and equally it's um i know well best way to describe it i guess it's it's not really conversational mm. you know as spend is happening because this stuff is all in real time yeah. and you've not got a chance for people to come together to talk around what's being spent why is it being spent how you know what the impact is and and really trying trying to create that culture uh, in sales in marketing in everywhere else of accountability and responsibility yeah and we're still working on that as well but I have to say our transparency with staff is quite high. Like we, I don't know, but, you know, I never saw the profit or loss for Grant Thornton or any other private, other businesses other than the public information out there. But we're very transparent with our staff with this kind of information, like how much money we have, what's our runway, you know. Other, it, just going back on it, I feel tremendous pressure, like worrying about if this business runs out of money, that's a hundred people without jobs. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous responsibility to manage that. And it scares me a lot that if I do this badly, the, this, this company, don't worry about <laughs> the investors, but people's lives are at stake. These are people's livelihoods. And so you want to make sure that that's right. But you also, as, as finance, you want to be the support network. You don't want to be dictating terms too much, but you also don't want to be coming, like re, like you said, retrospectively coming up with solutions, identifying problems. You want to be, you know, you want to be a team on this. And, and, and like you said, if people are transparent with their data, I do think it helps with that kind of communication and, and that working together piece as well. Because people aren't, you know, thinking that you're hiding things and people 
aren't questioning like, you know, is this a arbitrary rule that you came up with? Why am I dealing with this? What about the other guys? Are they are they also getting the same treatment? We put everything on confluence. These are our rules. You know, it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, let's let's revise them. Let's work together on this and and make sure it works so that everyone has a job, but you are also allowed to do what you want to do. Amazing. Um to obviously hear more about car next door. Just curious, what's next on uh, the car next door journey for you guys out of interest? Um, I think f- for us, we we want to continue our work on reducing the one car, one person, one car mentality. And I guess the reason why I really enjoy working at car next door is that it's doing good. And as I guess finance professionals, a lot of our work is focused on on money and and you know it is important don't don't get me wrong i <laughs> I love money, but at the end of the day we're 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 very fortunate people in very important positions um that we have to think about the greater picture of what we're doing, and I would say that you know you gotta try and do good for the world and use your position for some good okay and uh, that's listen, i'm i'm a big believer in terms of uh, building something uh, with values at the core mm-hmm. and anything that's going to have uh, an impact in terms of the environment um, and is conscious of that, conscious of, uh, I guess, sustainability and, yeah, societal impact, like, you know, mm. power to you and power, <laughs> to, the, power to the the team here because yeah. um, you're doing good. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess with that in mind um, – if people want to find out more about uh, yourself or Car Next Door, uh, where's where's what's the best way to get in touch? Well, I'll I'll share with you my LinkedIn. Add me. We can we can chat. I I've got tons of stories which I didn't get to talk about today, which I'm quite sad at. I, I wanted to promote how uh, thrifty I am and 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 start thinking about all these opportunities uh, that I I found. And I think if you really look, there are plenty of opportunities. Uh, in business and in your personal life um, that that you can really take advantage of. And it, it, it at the end of the day, it's like that thing that I talked about, mentality. If, if you're out there looking for things, you will you will find it eventually. Um, but if you never look, you, you're never going to find. Um, in terms of finding about Car Next Door, please visit our website, um, www.carnextdoor.com.au. Join us. Sign up. I'll give you some free credit. Wow. Um <laughs> I mean, if you're throwing around free credit, I know a guy sat <laughs> opposite you right now who will definitely take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, that's it from uh, today's episodes. Be sure uh, to subscribe to the podcast. Um, you can find us on both iTunes and Spotify. Um, and yeah, thank you for tuning in and look forward to catching up with everybody sometime in the near future. All right. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Ryan.